Thank you. We are really glad to be here this morning. We're glad that you're here. We have been talking about or thinking about this week, uh, this message, and been praying for you and praying over this, and we've titled this The Most Important Thing. And we've come to realize that the most important thing is what you might hear this morning. It might be different for every single one of you. And so, so we're going to pray and just trust that we can all hear this morning, that we can hear clear, clearly for our life. What is, what's the Spirit wanting to say to us? In just a moment, we're going to have you stand and with us and read the gospel message. But let's, let's pray first. Lord, we simply um, want to push away distractions this morning. Whatever it was that distracted us as we walked in here, whatever it might even be right now, that might be distracting us from hearing from your heart. And we simply trust you. We ask that, that um, in your speaking, because we know that you're always speaking to us, that we might hear clearly. That even perceptions that we've had in the past might, uh, if those are wrong perceptions or we have misunderstandings of something about you and your kingdom, that you would clear those up. And so we... Trust what you're wanting to do in this moment. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together here. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. If you'd just stand for a moment as we read the gospel message. Luke 10, 38. Now as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed, her, welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, so she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. You may be seated. As with all scripture, there's many levels and layers of meaning that are in here. But for a few minutes, I want you to forget your Mary Martha stories and sermons that you've heard over the years. I don't want you to figure out if you're Mary or you're Martha, or am I Mary in this situation and Martha in that situation? Or as one of my friends say, uh, she's Marty. She's a mix between the two. So I don't want you to think about where you're which one of those that you are, because we're going to take a little bit and we want to look at this story in the light of the culture of the time and where it's placed in scripture for us. So first of all, in this particular story, Jesus is continuing to rock the cultural and religious world at this time with his response to Mary and Martha. Just as last week with the story of the Good Samaritan that Jonathan shared with us, how he was challenging the religious leaders and he was challenging all of us to accept and value people and to go out of our way to love people who are different than we are, some who are radically different than we are, and that to express that love, that reckless love of Jesus is going to require some risk on our part. It's going to require us to be uncomfortable at times. So it feels like to go from the Good Samaritan and then to go on to the story of Mary and Martha, it feels like Luke has kind of shifted gears. 
but actually there's a common theme that goes throughout both of them. And we want to take a look at that, but first we want to look at some of the cultural um, information of the time to help us understand it. There's a common Jewish statement by a Jewish male at the time. You would oftentimes hear a male say, God, thank you that I was not um, created um, as a Gentile, nor a woman. Pretty strong statement at the time. There's an Anglican cleric, um, um, Sidney Smith, who's a, also a humorist, that was oftentimes heard saying, God, thank you that I was not um, born before tea. Some of you might think that about uh, specialty coffee or the internet. Um, we're glad that we weren't born before those. Um, in this culture at the time, there was a distinct difference between the roles and rules between men and women. As a matter of fact, even in the home, there were certain parts of the home um, that were kind of men's territory and women's territory. The front room, which would be like our great room or our living rooms, uh, that was male territory. Uh, the back rooms, the bedrooms, and the, and the kitchen was female territory. And literally, and this is actually true among many parts of the world even today, um, and they didn't, males and females did not mix except outdoors when they were with the children or in the marital bedroom. And so we have here, we have Mary is in the front room. This was a, a place for men. And Mary was in there sitting at the feet of Jesus. This would have been considered scandalous. This would have been unheard at of at the time. And so there was something that was changing here significantly because what did Jesus do about this? He affirmed it. He literally was rewriting um, the, the, the cultural um, um, structure uh, at the time uh, bet between uh, men and women. Now, someone that was sitting at the feet uh, of a teacher, a rabbi, or a teacher at the time, that again was men's territory. And that's where Ma Ma uh, Mary was at the time. Now, Somebody sitting at the feet of somebody, this was not a passive kind of just sitting there adoringly looking up and batting their eyes at them and just, oh, how amazing you are. Uh, when Paul in, in Acts 22 was sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, uh, this teacher, he was actually a student. He was actually trying to absorb everything that this teacher was. And so when somebody sat at the feet of somebody and followed a rabbi, they wanted to become like them. It was not just knowledge, but they actually wanted to form their life uh, and, and, um, in the likeness of this person. So not only would they be like them, but they would also be able to do like them. They would actually be able to teach the kinds of things um, that that, that uh, person taught. And so here we see Jesus is a, affirming Mary in this amazing role as she was quietly taking the place of a student and a would-be teacher in the kingdom of God. So for Jesus to say that Mary had chosen what was best would have been shocking or would have been scandalous to the people at the time. Once again, just as we saw in the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is showing us that he doesn't discount people based on their ethnicity or based on their gender or based on their past, but he values all people, that he has this overflowing love and grace for all of us and for all of the people around us. And he wants all people to know him 
and to be used by him and to grow in him, to have a life of freedom. God doesn't put limits on who he loves or who he chooses to work in and through. And he doesn't want us to put limits on them either. Galatians 3 says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. People may stereotype you. People may put you in boxes. They may say you can't do this because you're this or you're this or you're that. But God doesn't do that. God loves and embraces us exactly who we are. As humans, it's easy for us to stereotype people or to group people or to make assumptions about certain people. In God, there's none of that. The heart of God is to use all people. And we see that through scripture. When you look throughout scripture, you see people that are different genders. They have different backgrounds. They're rich. They're poor. He even used a prophet's donkey. So he can work in and through anyone that he chooses in the way that he chooses. So the driving force behind this scripture that we've kind of heard so many times and we've had a, um, this kind of... Um, idea of what we think it means. The driving force behind this is that, that God is showing us a kingdom, a, a kingdom on earth that looks different um, than we thought it was going to look. So, so we'd be limiting to see this story in the way that we have traditionally seen it as just these two different kinds of spirituality, this active style and contemplative style or works uh, versus worship as we so oftentimes have. One way to look at the action versus worship kind of a version of this is not so much which is better, but which is appropriate at the time. You have to look at the story here. Jesus was headed. He was in Bethany here. He was headed to Jerusalem. Uh, he knew what uh, lie ahead in Jerusalem. This would be the last time that he would go there. He was, he was headed to the cross. Um, a lot had been going on. And very possibly, he just simply wanted to pull away with these two um, disciples of his that had been very significant in his, uh, in his work in ministry and just have this quiet moment where he just spent time with them. And yet, um, Martha was very distracted. It was like she was having an anxiety attack almost here, uh, trying to make everything uh, uh, perfect. So Martha missed what was necessary at the time. So Jesus saying that Mary had chosen the better is not saying that what Martha was doing is not important. That it was not significant. If we didn't have people in the kitchen, there would be no food. Uh, this would not be a good thing in our life. But he was suggesting that something different needed to happen at the time. Now, we were talking about this in our staff meeting. Oftentimes, in our staff meetings, as we'll do tomorrow, uh, we talk about the, the text and the lectionary that's coming up just so that um, all of us can be aware of it and be thinking about it and praying through it, and we kind of give reflections on that. And our wonderful, our wonderful Shelby, many of you know Shelby, she's our children's pastor and our ch church administrator, and she said, oh dear, here we go. This is going to be my conviction message um, um, that will convict me of being so busy and, and, and always thinking about the next task that, I, that I'm not very good at stopping to, you know, 
learn how to listen and slow down and I need more prayer time and so forth. Uh, actually, if we didn't have the Shelbys of the world, we wouldn't get anything done. Uh, we would just sit around, and this would happen in our staff meetings, and we would just sit around and philosophize. Um, and we could do that for hours and hours and hours. And Shelby's like, right on, okay, the next point, okay, what are we going to do about this? Um, both of these are, are valuable. And so it wasn't that Jesus was upset that, that Martha was in the kitchen. Uh, they wouldn't have food um, if she hadn't been in the kitchen. I came in late to staff meeting this week, and um, Shelby said, they were saying, okay, we have the important things out of the way. Now, Shelby needs to talk about some dates or something we have to do. And, and she was like, the dates are the important thing. What are they thinking? <laughs> it's all in how we look at it. Jesus was speaking to Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by so many things. We can all get worried and distracted, can't we? Do you ever have times that you get so caught up in something that you feel like a cat over the bathtub? You know, that <laughs> kind of thing? <laughs> Where things are just like, oh, I'm so tense. I think when that happens, it's because we're doing things in our own strength. And oftentimes we're pursuing our own priorities instead of necessarily what God wants us to do. I think that's why he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's when we get off into our own priorities that we can get caught up in the anxiety. And oftentimes that franticness actually keeps us from connecting with God and actually being with him because we're so consumed by these other things. Jesus spoke often of the sower and the seed. He talked about the farmer in scripture. So he's not saying he just wants us to sit and contemplate him. He values work that we do. He's not saying that the mystic is better than the farmer or anything along those lines. It's the motivation and the distraction that he was challenging when he was talking to Martha. It's so easy to become distracted, but we can easily even become distracted in philosophizing. You know, sometimes you can get so distracted in that that you miss the person right in front of you that is hurting or that has a need. So it's being careful that we don't get distracted by the wrong things. The rich young ruler came to Jesus, and he asked a philosophical question. What do I need to do to in inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded with a practical answer. Go sell all your stuff. He balked at that. It's not really what he wanted to do. But our challenge in the busy culture that we have is not always that we're too busy. Because sometimes we say that, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. Sometimes it's not that we're too busy. It's that we've gotten distracted by things that are unimportant. Or it's that we are defining ourselves and our worth by our work and the things that other people see. Another side of this is that oftentimes we're doing things because we feel like that we should or that we ought. It's the wrong motivation. Sometimes we're doing things because we, we feel guilty that we, that we didn't do something. We feel like we should do this. Um, but it actually takes life away from us. There's a, a friend of mine, Dave Jewett, has a ministry called Your One Degree. The idea is that we have 360 degrees in life. And each of us have our one degree. It's kind of that place that we find ourselves, that rhythm that we find ourselves in life. 
um, that we are designed to do. You know those things that when you do them, it's like, this is what I was born to do. This is, this is what I know that I'm to be about. It's, it's when you do things, and it doesn't matter whether you get paid for it. It doesn't matter uh, whether, you, whether even people notice it, but something comes alive in you. And he suggests that we have these different kinds of, of um, tasks that we have in life. We have things that are green lights. We have things that are yellow lights. And we have things that are red lights. Green lights are those things that we do that when we do it, it actually energizes us. Something in us comes alive. And, and again, it's what we feel like that we're, we're born to do. Then we have yellow lights, and all of us have to do some of these. Um, we aren't going to live all in green lights. But yellow lights are things that we have to do. Um, it's the, the notes that I have to take after a counseling appointment. I just as soon not do it. It's trying to get things in the right form. We all have to do our taxes. All those kind of things have to be done. But they're kind of neutral. It doesn't take life away from us, but it doesn't give life. And then there are red lights. These are things that we do that just suck the life out of us. We just hate it. It just, it, it de- actually diminishes us. That would be taxes for me. <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> and so the idea is, how do we, are there some things that we're doing that are red lights that we're doing because we feel like we should do it or we're out of just kind of guilt or we feel like we ought to do that, but it's the, it's the wrong uh, motivation. When we and the Gungers uh, felt led five years ago to blend our churches together, Ed and I had many conversations, and we sat down and, and talked about what this might look like and the benefit of, of kind of having shared leadership and, and what that might look like. And, and he shared some things that were red lights for him. It was like, please, I, I just don't want to don't wanna do that. Um, it's so interesting that those happened to be green lights for me. Those were things that actually brought me to life. And then you put him in certain kind of things where he just comes alive, and those things would suck the life out of me. And so it's the benefit of a, of a team or a blending. Um, and so in our old age, we have this benefit of getting to do things that are mostly green lights. And so are there things that you just have, have had, are doing that Maybe something needs to change. Maybe there's some adjustment or a decision that you need to make to begin to move from red lights more into yellow and greens in your life. Or there's some things that are very well-intentioned that we do, but it's not necessarily what the need is around us. Martha thought the best way to love Jesus at the time was to prepare this meal for him. William Barclay suggests that Jesus may have wanted a one-course meal just sitting quietly talking to a few friends. And Martha decided it needed to be a multi-course meal and needed to have the right plates and napkins and flower arrangements, which I cannot relate to at all. (laughs) Who would possibly do that, says the woman with multiple sets of china and Rubbermaid tubs of cloth napkins and seasonal napkin rings to make it all look perfect. (laughs) Her heart may have been right in wanting to do this for Jesus, But it's not what was needed at the time. It was not the right thing at this particular time. How often do we try to do something for somebody and work really hard at it? 
and then it's not what they wanted or not what they needed, and we feel so unappreciated. It's like, oh, I work so hard, and it's not even good for you. I used to tell my kids when they were little, and I'd be working on matching outfits or whatever for holidays, and I would find myself going, leave me alone. I'm making this a wonderful holiday for you. (laughs) Many years ago, we had some friends who knew that I love flowers, and so they decided for my birthday the best thing to do was to get all my kids organized to come over on a Saturday morning and fix me breakfast and then have me sit in a chair while all my kids dug up my flower beds and planted flowers in them. And so they contacted my kids and got it all organized and everything, and we all got there, and I hated it. I want to plant my own flowers. I like digging in the dirt, and I like doing it by myself. Maybe with Brent there. There's other things I can have parties for. But planting flowers, it just wasn't one of them. I can't enjoy sitting there watching somebody do something that they don't like doing, which none of my kids did, but that I do like doing. But because my kids are nice people, they were like, okay, yeah, we can do that for mom. The, the people's intention was very good. Their heart was right. But it was absolutely the opposite of what I needed or I wanted. And so we have to be careful to listen and to watch and to see what is the need that I'm supposed to be meeting. What am I called to do for this particular person or for God? And to not get so distracted with our own plans that we miss out what the real need is in front of us. In relationships, this gives us the idea of love language, as many of you have heard that, the Uh, The concept or the idea that we have a tendency to give love in the form that we need it. So if I love something, then certainly you'll love it. Um, But oftentimes in relationships, whether it's our spouses or with our children, that they need love in a different form. Um, I'm an I'm an acts of service guy. I do. I'm just a helpful guy. I was just raised that way. Uh, My army colonel dad basically. Uh, told us boys to come home, and when you, the minute you get home, go and talk to your mother. She will give you some chores to do. You do those chores, get your homework done, then you go play. That's how I was raised. So I get married, and I'm helpful, and I just do stuff. And for years, uh, Janice oftentimes would say to me, I, just, I feel disconnected, and I just don't feel close, and I just don't feel special. And I'm like, how is that possible? Um, <laughs> I, I, like did, I like did the entire dishes last night. I mean, I put the kids to bed. I, I, on Monday, I vacuumed the house. Uh, and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday yeah. and Friday. <laughs> on, on the weekend, I took your car and I went and detailed it. And I don't even think you noticed. I spent years since she's standing here. Decades. Um, <laughs> Trying to convince her that she should feel loved by the way that I naturally love. And I can tell you after 38 years of marriage, it doesn't work. Um, It's the only way that she really receives love from me. Now, again, she appreciates those things. She doesn't want me to just lay on the couch and stop doing that stuff. But those things don't ring her bell. And so um, she's a small gifts person. She's a quality time person, of which I'm horrible at. And so it's just learning how do I love the other in a way that it is meaningful to them. So the final perspective here um, that we're going to spend a little time looking at is kind of the traditional interpretation 
of the fact that we just get busy and distracted um, from the most important things. It's the idea of the principle of the, the tyranny of the urgent. We have a tendency to, to just put our focus on those things that are like, that pop up right in front of us that are the squeaky wheels. How many times do we have to do some creative time or, or do something that, that, you know, write a very important report or this, that, or the other, and it's just easier to, you know, there's probably some more emails that I need to check. You know, it's just easier to do that thing that just comes, comes at us immediately. Uh, my challenge is to get quiet and to slow down. I, I tend to, I'm, I'm kind of a worker bee. I just tend to look for the next task, and I lean into those tasks, and all of a sudden I can get through almost a whole day, and did I do the really important things? Did I, or did I skip those, or did it get, those get, things get pushed to the side? Uh, we talk about this in marriages all the time, that, that we, we don't even realize that we're being neglectful. Uh, we use this idea that in early courtship, when we're smitten, we have this face, idea of face-to-face relationships. And, and there's something that, that in us that just wants us, natu- we just naturally want to nurture the relationship. We do really all those really important things to show that we care for them and serve them and love them. And, and it just creates really incredible end results. And, and yet all of us, we get married we turn side to side, and we simply get busy. Um, and what we find is all of our energy, most of our days are filled with all of the stuff that just takes to get life done, our work and our kids and the soccer practice and the, uh, paying the bills and cutting the grass and trimming up your, or cleaning up your yard from the windstorms and all of those kind of things. And, and the, what we find in the best of people, the best of relationships will slowly start disconnecting. They, we aren't even aware of it. We just get distracted. Uh, we start looking to um, things grab our attention, and we fail to do the really important things. And so even if those important things take less time, and oftentimes they, they do. They're not oftentimes the predominant amount of time that we spend. But it's those quality things that we miss, that we, that we fail to do. Even if it's simple as taking the proper time to say goodbye in the morning or to connect with our spouse at night and spend time to find out how their day went. And, and whatever those rhythms are, we just get easily distracted because of the tyranny of the urgent. We find that it's amazing the power of things like holding hands in church or kissing each other goodbye in the morning, or calling to check on someone that you love. Those little things make a huge difference in relationship, but they take consistency and they take time. It's very similar to our relationship with God. The rhythm of that has to be established. We need to have a rhythm of time in the Word and prayer time, and it's so easy to get involved in other things and to miss that. That's why we're really encouraging people to read the daily office each day. It's a combination of scripture and prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. And it gives us a form to help center us back in and keep us consistent in that time with the Lord. Now, I find when I read it, some days I will read it and it's like, "Mm mm-hmm, hmm, yep, okay, move on. I have other times that I read it. And it's like, I really don't know what that means. 
And then I have sometimes that I read it and it's like, oh my gosh, that is exactly what I needed to hear today. Or that just really pierced my heart. That's, wow, that is really a word from God for me. And it's such a good and rich time for me. But whether we get something deep out of it or whether it's just kind of a ho-hum today, as we continue in that discipline, as we continue to do it, even on those days that it's not as exciting, it still orients our heart and our mind towards God and towards his kingdom and our place in that. One of the things I've found that I love is reading the evening one at night when I'm in bed. Because with all the stuff going on in the day, it just focuses me back into what is the Lord saying? What is my place in him? And it has me go to sleep with him on my mind and thinking about his goodness, even as I drift off to sleep at night. And then we have just literal distractions, some things we just don't have good habits for. And we get through the whole day and we realize, I didn't, I didn't take any time to just stop and pray and listen and, we, and, and the day is gone. And sometimes we're just constantly distracted uh, by stuff. One of the things that we are seeing uh, so often in marriages today that we hear, we deal a lot with couples and how they deal with their conflict. And this is a predominant one today and it is simply social media. Um, we, we hear this in the office every single day. Well, they just, they are always on their Facebook. Or even when we're out on a date, um, they're on their phone all the time. And they're just distracted. They're just taken away by those things. And so um, it seems like in, in, our, in our culture today, with all of these wonderful little technology things that we have, uh, it seems like that they have now become the new Pavlovian bell. It dings or beeps or buzzes or, you know, has your favorite ringtone or whatever it is that gets your attention. And it's like we start salivating. It's like it just pulls us. It's like we have to check. We have to check that, that most recent email. We have to check and see if somebody retweeted, you know, something um, that, or likes something on Facebook. Or today it's Pokemon. You know, it's, uh, where, where, where are they and how do we find them? And, and so it's, it, again, it's just distraction. Now, social media is not evil, but it's simultaneously, simultaneously doing two things. Number one, it's easy for it to be a distraction. And number two, it is basically consistently telling us how valuable we are on how many likes we got on our most recent posts um, the more likes you get, the more followers you get, the more important you are. And so something is forming us. We are consistently being formed. And so what is it that we're being formed by? We're encouraging people to take simply technology breaks. Uh, we talk about fasting. Oftentimes we think about fasting as food, and it is a good rhythm to get into every week, take a, a meal or two and just simply fast. It's basically saying that this is not going to control my life, that God is in control of my life and pushing the plate away. But, but I wonder if we need to take technology breaks. We encourage families, if we're going to sit down for the family meal, maybe you have a little basket by the di dinner table and everybody just sticks their phones in there and nobody looks at it. Uh, 
And it's up on the counter, and we just are there together, and nobody's going to be pulled by that, learning how to keep it in our pocket. Whatever, whatever it is that, that begins to say, that is not in control. Um, that, that is not in charge. And so as we, as, we, as we close here this morning, there's just some things I want us to think about and consider. And again, as we recognize at the beginning, there may be a, a different thing for each and every one of you that is the most important thing that God's wanting to get, a, get your attention about this morning. Um, first of all, are you allowing your position in culture, your gender or education or lack of education or background or hurts or difficulties or, or failures in the past, are you allowing that to determine um, whether God works in you and through you or not? Um, are, you, uh, are, are you limited because of what you think about yourself or what you think other people think about you? Um, do you feel like that you have a lesser role in the kingdom because you have more of a background, uh, in the background kind of a role uh, that you're not going to be a scene? And therefore, what it is that you feel led to do is just not as important as others. Um, are you doing things that are red lights, things because you should and you ought or you feel guilty about doing it, and it's really not motivated by God's heart, um, and we need to say no to some of those things? Are we allowing things to distract us, uh, whatever those things might be? And sometimes distractions can actually be good things. They can be uh, seemingly very good things, but we just allow those to, to take charge. If you're if you're going to work and taking care of the children and cooking and cleaning and paying the bills, those are all good things. Those aren't evil. But are we allowing those to dominate everything and we, we don't have those, those moments of, of refreshing and encouraging? Um, and have we developed good healthy habits that are building a life and orienting us um, towards God and what He wants to do in and through us? You've been made in the image of God. You are the only you on the planet, you are the only one that can move the kingdom forward in the way that you would, in the expression that you are. God wants to do his good work through you. So what are the important things? What are the true priorities um, that God would be uh, speaking to us this morning? Let's pray. Lord, we, <clears throat> we simply are coming to you and saying that we trust you and your plans and your purposes over ours. Um, and oftentimes we even realize that, that how we're living our life is not even necessarily being chosen by us, that we are just in it, that we have established certain patterns and rhythms, that it's what our life has become because we are a product of those patterns and rhythms. And yet it's not really what we've determined and certainly it's not oftentimes what's been inspired or breathed into us by you. And so, Lord, we just open our hearts and our lives up to you and say, reorient us, rework us, um, bring those things, those most important things for us to be aware of today, um, because we know that it's in you and through you that we have the, the fullness of life, and we want to be about moving your kingdom forward in the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, 
or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.